It's been almost two years since I sat down and recorded the very first episode of Death Becomes Him. As we prepared to release this series, the world went into lockdown and at the time, we believed this series would provide some comfort or support for the recently bereaved. What we didn't expect was the difficulty the next two years would behold, how many lives COVID would claim, how lockdown would influence the grieving process and how needed a space to discuss loss would become. Over the course of creating this podcast, I've run live sessions on Instagram and invited people to speak openly about their grief. And I've watched them be supported by the wonderful listeners of this show. This has become a space for people to turn to, to find connection, to share and to honour those we have lost. It is an absolute privilege to be here to host it. I am Brian Dowling and this is Death Becomes Him. You don't just lose someone once, you lose them over and over sometimes many times a day, when the loss, momentarily forgotten, creeps up and attacks you from behind. Fresh waves of grief, as the realization hits home, they are gone again. These are the words shared by Colleen McNally on Instagram, on a page she set up to share memories and photos of her son Dara. In 2019, 11-year-old Dara passed away after a battle with aggressive lymphoma. Today, she talks to me about how for her, time does not heal, but rather she has learned to live with the pain. Colleen, hello, how are you? I'm good, Brian, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Welcome to your episode of Death Becomes Him. I'm so thrilled you are part of the family and we are talking to you for season four. You and I first connected on an Instagram live. We did, yes. We were actually in bed that night. You and I weren't in bed that night. No, (laughs) no. Let's just establish that. It's not this kind of podcast. Right, I'm going to rephrase that. I was in bed with the girls. Yes. And uh, we were watching, um, you were doing a live. That's correct, on the Death Becomes Him Instagram page. Yes, on Instagram, and you could join, and I joined, and I think the girls got more out of it. They were like, are we famous now, are we? (laughs) And yeah, that was the first time we actually spoke. The good thing about this podcast is you and I are going to have a very open, very honest conversation, sometimes uncomfortable, about grief, about death, about loss, hope, recovery. That's also the bad thing about this conversation. And this podcast is we're going to have that conversation. And you were here today to talk to us about the tragic passing of your son, Dara. Yes. Who was only 11 years old. And I was on your Instagram page last night and it says on the, the banner on the Instagram page, I speak about life, family, grief and autism. Yes. Tell us why that's so important to you. Okay, so Dara, our gorgeous angel, um, had autism, so he had. And he was diagnosed with autism when he was about four and a half, four and a half to five. And I remember um, when we found out that Dara had autism, and I remember thinking, oh my God, you know, my child is not, it has autism. This isn't the life that I predicted for him. And we sat down and we said, no, this is Dara. It doesn't define who Dara is. Dara is Dara and he has autism. And whatever help he needs and whatever we can do, we're going to do 
as best we can. And we, from day one, we both, we both said that. And I suppose Dara's journey with autism um, was somewhat challenging. And um, we, we witnessed firsthand the challenges of autism. But I never let that get in on us. I never let that take over our family life. I never, I always said, you know, if today is a challenging day with autism, tomorrow's another day. And I said, It's quite a positive, upbeat attitude to have, especially when you're experiencing this day to day. Yeah. And like Dara had his good days. Don't get me wrong. He had plenty of good days, but there were days that were challenging. There were days we went to bed and we were in tears because he found the day quite difficult. But we never, ever let that, you know, get in on us. We never let it get, get us down. We just kept trying with him and we knew the ways to help this child. Nobody knows their child more than their two parents. And it didn't matter what psychologists said to us and what speech therapists. I actually remember psychologists saying to us that Dara probably would never speak, that Dara would probably never be able to express emotion. And how wrong was he? Yeah. Like Dara was the most lovable. He was a villain. He was a rascal. You know, like, I'm laughing when you say yeah. villain and rascal. <laughs> he I really was like, and like, you know, there was a fine line we used to say between the rascal and Adara and the autism because he chances arm with everything. So he would. But look, at, you know, we just got on with it. We have three other beautiful children as well. And uh, they did everything they could for Dara. And the days that were good, those days were brilliant. Yeah. And they were the days when we did the most simplistic things, you know, with, you know, I, I we often say with grief, it teaches you, you know, how to look at the world differently and appreciate more, yeah, more, all that you have. But autism does that too. Because this child can't verbally tell you everything they want and they don't want the stuff that other children want. They just want your time. They want, you know, to go to a beach. They want to go to a park. They want to jump on the bed. They want to jump on a trampoline. And these were the things that Dara absolutely loved. And he made us do them. And he made us get up at eight o'clock in the morning and be on a beach. And we no more wanted to do that. But when we're out there, and he's a big service dog, Glenny, and we're there as a family, you know, Paul and I just used to look at each other and say, so glad we're, we're doing this. And we don't want what other people have. We have what we have. And this works for us, you know. Because you're also very grateful in that moment that you have Dara. Yes. And that he completes your family. And yeah, and on that subject, like, and this is nothing I've ever spoken about on Instagram, but like Paul and I, you know, were a long time waiting for Nathan, you know, like we had four miscarriages so we had so I remember having Nathan and being so complete with one child but by God when we had Dara and these two little boys and this double buggy and I remember saying to Paul you know this is us we're so complete like we are blessed and I suppose that I always remember longing for one child so that never left me because even when Dara was diagnosed with autism, I did never once said, why, why us? Or why has he got autism? I was just so thankful, you know, that this beautiful brown eyed boy was ours and that we were capable and able 
to give him as best a life as we could give him. I think if I was in your situation, the first question I would ask would be why? It's funny that you didn't go to the why and I'm going to ask you why didn't you go to the why? Yes. No, I never went and I mean that. Even now, still don't. No, I never go to the why for autism. I do go for the why for death. Yeah. But I never went to the why for autism because we're all different, Brian, right? And I'm a firm believer of that. There's no two people in this earth the same. And, you know, living a life where you, people expect you to be a certain way, that doesn't go well with me at all. So, so what if he was a little different? So what, you know, if he expressed his emotions differently? So what if he couldn't speak like you or me? He could fairly communicate, you know? So it never, ever got in in me. What annoyed me was people's ignorance to it. Okay, tell me about that. So, um... I remember one day we were out in a lovely place in Dundalk, Fitzpatrick's restaurant, and there were they do an amazing um, Halloween and Christmas displays outside, and the Halloween is um, the Halloween one is amazing, and they had these like um, ice cream, you know, like ice cream fridges, yeah. the old ones, especially you know the ones where they where you go into a shop and it would have HB written on it or whatever. So they had really really old ones of these. And they had like skeleton bodies coming out of them. And it's a really, really good display. So we were out at this Halloween display and I had said to the kids, we'll go to the Halloween display and then we'll get ice cream. And with Dara's autism, he seen, he went to the Halloween display and he seen this fridge that had a scraped out HB sign on it. And he wanted the ice cream from this fridge with a skeleton coming out of it. It wasn't even plugged in that was used for a display. So he went over to the fridge and he we couldn't get him away from it and he couldn't understand why there was no ice cream in it. So Paul had to physically lift him away. And I watched from the car. I watched people looking disapprovingly at Paul and this child coming screaming and crying. And I remember just saying, this is what bothers me. Mm. Why are people staring at a father trying his very best to get his child away from this situation, to get him to the place where he will get his ice cream. Like, we've had so many situations like that. And like, if all these people had seen Dara literally five minutes later, eating his ice cream, singing songs. Happy as Larry. You know, and we've come across this so many times, and I'm sure there's plenty of families out there that will be able to relate to this when it comes to autism. You know, People shouldn't judge. People shouldn't look at a child and say, oh, God, that's a bold child or that child's naughty or that child, you know, shouldn't be allowed to do that. They should just step back and accept that this child could be on the spectrum. This child mightn't be bold. Like very the majority of the time they're not. You know, they have they're on the spectrum somewhere. And I think as the, the you know, as time went on, Paul and I grew a thicker skin and we stopped looking at people. We stopped um, seeing their looks of disapproving, you know, disapproving looks. And we started to say, no, we're not going to get down over that anymore. And we just did everything that suited Dara's needs. So even the holidays we went on, we used to get a villa, hire a villa that was enclosed. Dara had flight risk. Um, and you know he had his own that we had his own pool there, and if he had any 
challenge behaviour or any meltdowns, we weren't on show. We had our own little villa and um, we would be able to control Dara and help Dara without an audience. I almost think in a way you're almost protecting him yes. from people's opinions, yeah. him from the glare of people's eyes and their assumptions of what kind of child he is. Exactly. And as a parent, you're doing your best to protect him yes. from that. Exactly. But it seems to me as if you actually stopped caring, you don't want to give a fuck what people were thinking. But that's the yeah. truth. We and we ca- It was very hard to get to that point. Of course. Because he's your child and how dare somebody judge him and how dare somebody look at you disapprovingly. But it came to a stage, I suppose it was when the girls came along and we really had... Um, an entourage, <laughs> uh, that we stopped caring. And um, I do think as well, I would have done a lot of uh, advocating for autism and trying to help people understand. Because as much as it annoyed us, you'd have to give them some credit to because was I, did I know much about autism until it came into my life? Exactly. I think it's it's the word people are ignorant to it. To and it. I would probably include myself because I've not experienced, you know, my nieces and nephews aren't on the spectrum. Yeah. You know, there's no autism, you know, in our family. So I suppose it's about educating yourself. Yes. So what do you think people should know from your experience with autism? How can we educate ourselves and become more equipped so we're not the people that are staring in that situation when Paul's trying to take Dara away from the ice cream. How do we, how do we make it better? How do we educate ourselves? Firstly, if you, as particularly in social situations or in crowds or stuff, if you see a child and they, you can see that the parent is struggling, that the child is having a meltdown, maybe just go over to the person and say, is there anything I can do to help? Anything at all, you name it, whether it's get the car for you over or do something. Like I'll always remember, um, Dara used to be collected um, outside our house in a little bus for school. He went to a different school than the other kids. In fact, when Dara passed away, Dara was at one school, Nathan was in secondary school, Nisha was in Bay State School and Layla was at preschool. So the four of them were in different venues. And I always remember... um, Something happened on the bus between my house and the corner of the estate. And and I'm coming in the car with the other three in the car and I see the bus stopped and nobody could settle Dara more than I could. Of course you were Nobody. Saying. Yeah. So um, I hopped out of the car and I went down to the bus and what's wrong with you, Dara? And trying to comfort him. Meanwhile, three kids are late for school. And I just seen my neighbour coming, God bless her. And she hopped out of the car and she just said, Colleen, you just work away there. I'm taking your three to school for yeah, you. Yeah. And I never forget her for that because the, the pressure that was taken off me that I could solely deal with Dara. So I suppose going back to your question, particularly if you're in a neighbourhood with um, a child with autism or they're in your community, maybe just call on the parent and ask them, is there anything I can do? Because particularly with children with flight risk, it's quite difficult to take them in to do grocery shopping or it's quite difficult to do simple things that you and I would take for granted. And it's only now that I'm at this side of it that I, and I never forget the challenges of autism. And um, I'd give anything to be back there again. But it is difficult. And, you know, if, if your neighbours in your community and we are in a fantastic community like 
our estate is Mead Bun in Dundalk and it the the our neighbours are just amazing and they used to everything that they did, any social events or anything that happened, it always included our children because there's a couple of children in our estate that have autism. So um I suppose just be more aware, ask the the families, do they need any help? Don't stare, don't judge. Talk to me about flight risk. You're like, saying about Dara. Is that for me, you know, is that they don't want to be in that area and they could leave or go or run away? Yes. Well, okay. to that extent. Relieved means- I got that kind of right. I was like, oh no, do not get it wrong now, Brian. No, not now. We're going good. <laughs> Have yes. I asked you, how do we educate ourselves? <laughs> Right. It's kind of when they have no concept of danger. That would okay. be more of the, the terminology that would, they would use. With Dara, Dara totally got the, the danger when it came to fire or okay, candles or yes. kettles or yeah. heat or water. He got that end of it. But when he was out on the footpath, he could be gone like that. So no danger of traffic, other people. Yes, okay. and all of that. So that's when we... Um, you, like you'd what is I'm sure all, all neighbours and a lot of people in Dundalk would have seen Paul many a day coming with Dara on his shoulders, coming up the up the street um after running after him. And even when we used to get uh people to mind Dara, which we didn't do too often as he got older, um I used to say, Can you run? Can you catch him? And they'd be <laughs> laughing at this. But that's probably what it's more. It's that there's no concept of danger and for us, what we did was we got a service dog for Dara. Okay. And this helped him immensely. We got Lenny from my canine companion in Cork. And um, yeah, Lenny's still with us. So he is. And Did Lenny win uh, the, the nose of Tralee? Yes. 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 He did. I and actually, then... when I read that, I went, the rose of Tralee for dogs. <laughs> I read it about 10 times, not seeing the word nose. I went, there's one for dogs? I didn't know this. The nose of Tralee. He won the nose of Tralee, yes. And uh, How amazing. Yeah, Lenny the celebrity. Um, yeah, Lenny was great. I should be chatting to Lenny Yeah, today. you should. You should have Lenny up here. Yes. Um, Lenny's afraid of his shadow, God bless him. Um, but yeah, Lenny taught Dara so much. Um, there's a little belt attached to Lenny's coat that goes around Dara's waist. And uh, Lenny follows your commands. So when you come to the curb, you say to Lenny, curb, wait. And eventually Dara, without Lenny, started to come to the curb and he'd say, curb, wait, and no to stop at the curb and not bolt onto the road. You know, so like the progress that Dara had made from four and a half to being diagnosed. To being told he won't show emotion, he won't speak. Oh my God, it was like huge. And it was continuous, continually, um, getting better all the time with him, so it was. He still, don't get me wrong, he still had his days where television, a lot of stuff on television bothered him to, you know, and it was only as time went on we understood. So, for example, Friends, you know, the little comedy central uh, icon thing in the yes. corner. Yeah, that's what annoyed Dara. Or the Such live Such small, yes. intricate detail in the top left-hand side of the yes. screen. Yeah. How funny. And I remember, like, one of the days, him coming home from um, school, so distressed I remember I couldn't even get him off the bus and literally 10 minutes later I was taking a video of him sitting hugging me uh, to the bus escort saying look at he's fine now but she kept saying to me Colleen absolutely nothing happened on the bus nothing at all he came the same route home nothing happened and I says 
something always something happens. Triggers. Something triggers it. Yeah. And I remember putting them into the car and I drove down to the school and I drove back up and it was the elections. The elections were on and all the posters were on all the um, telegraph posts. Yes. And there was one of them and the face was coloured in. There was a pair of glasses. There was a beard. Somebody done graffiti on one of them. And I know for a fact that's what happened to her. Dara was looking at all these. The detail. Yeah. And that is what bothered Dara. Or if a traffic light was out, that would bother Dara. Because these things in Dara's head, these things shouldn't happen. Yeah. Something, somebody shouldn't have a pair of glasses drawn on them. If they don't wear glasses, don't draw them on them. He's right. If a traffic light is broke, it shouldn't be there. He's right. It, it was like even, I'm going changing the subject here, when we were in Crumlin and the, we were in ICU and uh, the, when they were talking about when he was going to wake up and we were looking up at the television and I was like, is there a remote for that television? And they were like, we'll find it. And then they found the remote and the television was broke. And I says, well, before Dara wakes up, that television has to go. Yeah. I says, it's either working or it's not working. Get it out of here. Yeah. And I remember like when he, he broke the television um at home and he didn't break it because of behaviour he broke it because of excitement and he flung the remote and with the television was literally two weeks old and I used I'd say to him what did you do Dara and he'd go what did you do he'd say and I'd say oh what what happened and he'd go oh no he'd say the television's broken ma'am get a new one put it in the bin put it in the bin I'm at that Arthur get me a new one put it in the bin (laughs) And that was it. It was. It's, he was very black and white. So but it's also very endearing it is. when he says that if he has broken the television yeah. as his mother and he's talking to you and he's communicating with you. Yes. But there's humour. There's humour in that. But you had to have humour with Dara. And patience. And you did, definitely. Yes. Like I remember one morning he, we were get, after getting this brand new marble cream fireplace. I was after it for about a year. And he literally drew the whole alphabet on one side can't. of it. <laughs> no, I can't, Colleen. You, you patience of a saint. <laughs> one to ten on the other side. And he drew all these pictures in the front of it. And I mean in black felt mark. Were they nice pictures? Oh, my God. <laughs> and school was, they were all going to school that morning. And I'm ringing mum and dad, roaring and crying, going, Mum, my fireplace is destroyed. He's ruined a, it. I need a new one. And sure, mum and dad down on their hands and knees with this pink stuff. I never had heard of the pink stuff but the pink stuff's brilliant and got the whole fireplace cleaned and he came back from school that day and he, I could see him going very cautiously into the sitting room and I could hear him saying it's all cleaned he says it's like he was testing <laughs> yes. you yes when you look at that fireplace now if you still have it we do how does it make you feel I can still even though it's cleaned as much as you can clean it there's still like a the dot, there's not a high shine like there was supposed to be yeah, I can see everything in our house has something of Dara on it because Dara, you know, wasn't the most carefulest child. So a radiator cover has a little dent on it. You go into the toy room. He drew, again, freshly painted walls. He drew a beautiful house. Kept you on your toes. And a Gonna tree. And a tree. And this, was, this has been painted over. Probably twice. Mm. And you can still faintly see his little house and his tree and uh, everything. Uh, upstairs, his bedroom's still there. Do you yeah. find that helping you with your grief or hindering you in your grief? I find 
it helps okay. because I haven't changed it and I haven't done anything. If you go out and look at my car, I still have a, t- a sticker on it saying there's a child with autism in this car. Mm-hmm. So um, I suppose it's difficult to change everything when he was such a prominent person in the house. And and I think when you have a child with special needs, your whole family life revolves around them. You know, everybody in the house um, just tunes into them. And for us, he was probably the biggest personality in the house. And he was, as I said, the most prominent figure. So when somebody like him goes, you know, they 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 leave their mark big time, probably more so than if the other children, because he just left his stamp on every single room in the house. And would you believe we were in the process of getting a sensory room built? So we were, and this Dara passed away in the middle of getting this sensory room built. So this room is now built. And it's called the quiet room because this was going to be Dara's room where when the world got too much for him, you go in here. And now when the world gets too much for us, any of us, Mm. we go into this room and it's Dara's room. Talk to me about Dara's diagnosis, aggressive lymphoma. Yeah, we went on holidays. Um, the beginning of October. Dara turned 11 actually on holidays. And would you believe the story with that holiday is that I was supposed to go on my own. Every year I went, I gay crashed mum and dad's holiday to have a little break from autism, a little bit of respite. And there's no harm in admitting to that. You need a break. And I take one of the other kids and I was supposed to go with my mum and dad and my sister and her daughter. And uh, it was about the middle of September um, we had a challenging day with Dara and we were sitting that night and I said to Paul do you know what I don't just need a break he needs a break you need a break the kids need a break we're all going on holidays rang dad I says we're all going the more the merrier Colleen so Your dad's like great I got the spare rooms ready no he's like get the visa he'd get his visa card out <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so anyway um, so that was it so we were never supposed to go on that holiday as a family. I was supposed to go on my own. Um, so for that, I'm so thankful. So we went on holiday. We noticed on holiday that he wasn't eating. Did it flag anything major for me? No, because with autism, when you're out of your routine and in the heat, uh, he mightn't have ate much anyway. But um, he definitely, definitely, the last two days was off he wouldn't go in the pool he wouldn't go in the sea and Dara was a water baby and we just thought he was coming down with something so when we arrived home from holiday on the Saturday night he never um he never ate anything for us on the Saturday night he never had anything on the Sunday so on Monday I said to Paul will you take today off work so this was completely <laughs> out of line what yeah yes normal well, behavior I knew, I knew this eating wasn't habits it, yeah. okay so I said to Paul, will you take um, today off work and we'll take him to the doctor? And that was the thing. The two of us had to go to the doctor because I probably in the back of my head. I was thinking we were going to go to the hospital that day. OK. And we should have went to the hospital that day, but we didn't. 
So the doctor looked at him and said it was more a viral infection. I could see this little mottled look on his face. And um, I thought he'd the mumps. And no, the doctor said, no, it wasn't the mumps. Just keep an eye on him. So we came home. We were getting work done to the house. We were getting the kitchen in at the time, getting the kitchen sprayed and different things done. And I stayed at home with him that whole week. He ate a little bit for me, but I def- the mottled look on his face wasn't going. But he was definitely quiet. He wasn't fit enough to go to school. But it, we were like, I can recall, you know, um, the, the, the boys that were working in the house, they normally went out to their van to have their lunch or go off and have their lunch. And I remember one day they said they were having their lunch. And um, I was watching, we were watching something on the television. I don't know what it was. And he says, Mommy, do you want to dance? Do you want to dance? And the two of us were dancing around the coffee table. And it was only when I looked through the double doors, I seen actually one of the workmen was still at the kitchen table watching me ridiculously dancing around this table with him. So he still, God bless him, as sick and all as he was, he still tried to the very end to keep going. And at this point with the dancing around the table, nothing was highlighted to you that this was very, very serious. Yeah, nothing. No, nothing Nothing to Viral that Viral infection, he yeah. hasn't got mumps. Okay. Yeah. But on the Wednesday night, he'd say to me, Mum, my neck hurts, my head hurts. So we got um, somebody around that is like a physiotherapist or chiropractor or something like that just to see had he anything wrong with his neck he did a little rub and stuff on his neck and it still no it, it, it still didn't help him so Thursday morning I got up and I landed to the doctor with him again I said I'm still not happy he's not getting any better you know no she didn't see anything wrong with him she didn't pick up on anything so anyway that went on Friday Saturday night, we went to the doctor on call. You were persistent. Yeah. The doctor on call told us that he would probably need his bloods done, and uh, but not to go to the hospital that night, to go on the Monday morning. So we got up on Monday morning, and Monday morning when we got up, his face was swollen. His face was very much swollen and quite red. But he still had this big, and I have photographs of him, big smile on his face um, on the bed. So we landed up to Drogheda. And I have tried to find this doctor's name. He was amazing. He didn't stop till he got to the bottom of Dara's, of what was wrong with Dara. So in Drogheda, they did um, a scan on his lymph nodes and nothing showed up there. Um, But as soon as they did his bloods, um, it flagged up a serious infection and then the x-ray on his right lung showed up an infection. And even in Drogheda, the worst case scenario, scenario for us in Drogheda was that he had a very, very, very bad case of pneumonia and that he'd need a drain put in his right lung and they were taking us to Temple, Temple Street. So that evening we went to Temple Street and again, Dara being Dara, had to ride in the ambulance. He wouldn't go on the stretcher. Mammy had to go on the stretcher up in the ambulance and we went up to Temple Street that night. And we were sitting in Temple Street and we got into a room in Temple Street and um, we met a doctor and he said three things could be wrong with Dara. And I can't recall what the other two, mm. but I do remember him saying cancer. And I remember saying, no, not 
Darren doesn't have cancer. No, it has to be the other two things. So the next day, um, a lovely doctor, she was a woman, and I forget her name too, she came into the room and she says, Colleen Paul, she says, we're almost certain this is the worst cases of pneumonia, she says. We're taking him down to surgery now. She says, we're going to put the drain in his right lung. And she says, and we're go- he's go- that's going to be there for a couple of days. And uh, he's probably going to be in hospital for three weeks. And I did, that, did that bring you relief? You'd heard three diagnoses. One was cancer. No, no, no. You're hearing pneumonia as a parent. Yes. Oh, shit, well, we're out of the woods today. Definitely. Because I know by the way I reacted when I took him down to surgery and what happened after that. So I remember ringing my mum and saying, mum, he's, um, he's gone down to surgery now. This is going to be terrible for Jar. How is he going to cope? with a drain coming out of his lung for three, pull it out and she'll not cope with that. I said, look, we'll cross that bridge and we come to it. So I took him down to surgery. And <clears throat> I remember putting my face up to his face, trying to calm him while they were getting him asleep. And I remember saying to him, which he always said to me, your mommy's best boy ever. And I watched him go asleep. And that was the last time I seen him awake. No. Yeah. So that for me was, um, I didn't know it. That was my goodbye. But I didn't know it. It's it, it completely flipped to go from one thing and you're worrying about how you're going to make this happen with, with the drain and all that. Yeah. To use him, mom's best buy, you know, yeah. going asleep and then not waking up. How did they explain this to you? So we went, I can, I remember walking back with um, somebody that was in uh, surgery. One of the, I don't know what he did. He wasn't a doctor, but I remember him saying to me, you're just brilliant with that, with Dara. He says, I says, but you're lucky he's mine. And Paul met me outside. And Paul was saying, is he okay, Colleen? And I says, he's way off to sleep. Come on, we go and find a shop to see, can we get him? He adored Peppa Pig, absolutely. He was Peppa Pig's number one fan. And he knew the date of every magazine that came out. I says, come on to we see, can we get him the newest magazine that's out? So we walked down to the shop. There was absolutely nothing in the shop. And I said to Paul, come on, we better go back to the room just in case it's a quicker procedure than what we think it is. It's only a drain at the end of the day going into him. Um, and we went back up and we sat in the room and um, we sat there and we sat there and we sat there. And I don't know what time had passed and the doors opened and a group of doctors, a doctor and her associates come in. And we were sitting, I was sitting on the bed and Paul was sitting on the chair beside the bed holding my hand and she came in between the two of us and she got down on her, she got down on her knee, not her knee, she got down on her hunkers and she was saying, she grabbed, she took my hand and Paul's hand and she said, um, she says, we put the drain into Dara, she says, and the fluid that came out, she says, was not fluid of an infection, she says. Um, she says there's no easy way for me to tell you this she says Dara has a huge mass on his lungs 
on his right lung and it's resting on his heart, she says. Dara is a very, very sick little boy, she says. He has cancer. And God help her, she didn't know what to she didn't know what to look or what to say. I just remember it just your world. When they say your world comes crashing down, that is exactly what it is. And it went from him having pneumonia to being the sickest boy in Ireland that night. So when we went to see him in Temple Street, he was in ICU. Mum and Dad had come up and Paul's mum and Dad had come up at that stage and they had told us he had to go into a special ambulance, an ambulance that cannot go over a certain speed. Okay. Because the journey from Temple Street to Crumlin was crucial. And I think, no, no, I don't think I know, they nearly lost him twice. Okay. Going from Temple Street to Crumlin. So all of a sudden we're in Crumlin. We couldn't get in to see him, whatever they were doing to get him comfortable. And we were sitting in this, the, the, the parents' room, it's called, up in ICU in Crumlin. And all of a sudden there's an oncologist standing in front of us. There is the top paediatric doctor in ICU and there's a heart specialist, the heart specialist in Crumlin. And you're looking at these three people and they're telling you all of this. And it's like you're standing outside the window looking in at Colleen and Paul listening to this. Because although they're telling you all of this about your child, it doesn't register with you because this is your son who you were dancing around the kitchen table with, you know, four days ago. And um, yeah, so that night we were told that it was hour by hour with Dara and, you know, that he was extremely, extremely, extremely sick. And uh, yeah, that's that was that was the first night in Crumlin. Um, the next day, the next three days, he started getting vigorous um, treatment. He got emergency chemotherapy. He was put on a very high dose of steroids and everything um, was just had to be done straight away. Uh, we were just in a bubble at that stage and um, just sitting by his bed and couldn't believe that this was happening. And then I think by the Friday, he turned a corner and we started getting better news. And we started getting to be, you know, he started, he was, he was responding to the treatment. You were hopeful. Definitely, definitely much more hopeful. Still knew he was critical. Still knew he had, um, you know, a, a long journey ahead of him, but not thinking the worst. And it gave us hope. Actually, did you ever think at any point as a parent, he'd pass away, he would never come home. You never, never gave up. Never, ever. Right. Never, Brian. Um, Dara passed away at seven o'clock on the 24th of November. And nobody knows this since the first time I probably am saying this. I was on the phone to a faith healer at one o'clock in the morning. I was not giving up hope. And even through the weeks when 
you know, they were telling us different things were happening and, um, you know, he did, he, at, at the week three, we were told that, you know, he was doing well, as well as could be expected. Like the big thing for us was getting him into St. John's Ward. We were actually saying, can't wait till Dara's in St. John's Ward. Imagine saying these words, you can't wait till your child is in a cancer ward. I know when you said out loud, you go, Jesus. You know, but I that know. was that was a big thing for us. There was a point at week three that they took took him off life support and that he he was on it. He breathed, I think, on his own for two or three hours that day, but he had to be retubed. And um, I think from then he, he went downhill, so he did. How were Nisha, Nathan and Layla coping with all of this, did they know how serious it was? No. Or did you try and protect them? We tried to protect them. No, we didn't. At the, initially, we didn't tell them anything. So um, we told them Daryl was in hospital. We told him he was very sick. We told him he'd, he'd be home for Christmas, which we honestly believed too. So you're not telling lies. No. You, you, no. You're, you're saying he will yes. be home for Christmas. He will be home for Christmas. Yeah. You know, and I remember even saying at one stage, like... Um, God, the worst case scenario is if he's still in for Christmas, you know, one of us are going to be at home and one of us is going to be here with him. You're planning that far ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember even um, Halloween night and I said to Dr. Angus, he was uh, Dara's doctor. I remember saying, um, we're, we're thinking of going home for Halloween for the kids. And he was like, go, 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 go home. He says, go home for one night. And that was the only night Paul and I went home in the five weeks and five days together and uh, he rang us at eight o'clock that night and he was like no Dara's very comfortable and you go and enjoy it and I remember we have a mead we have a, a whatsapp group um for the first for our state and there was fireworks and stuff going on and I remember saying to one of my friends will you please tell everybody just to let me just let me and Paul be with the three kids tonight bring them around to the firework display please don't be coming over to us because we're holding on by a thread here and we're doing everything for these kids and we have to try for them. And we did, we did that. Imagine we came home, we watched fireworks. We actually recorded the fireworks for Dara because he loved fireworks to show him. And Nisha was like, I'm going to show Dara these fireworks when he wakes up and all of this. And uh, no, he didn't, he didn't, didn't get to see the fireworks. Does exhaustion cover those five and a half weeks do you sleep what's is it just sheer panic and chaos yes we i like that yes, yes. straight yeah. away didn't take a breath yeah yes no we didn't we we never slept while we were um we were staying in the hospital for a few days and then we got into ronald mcdonald house if you did sleep it was the lightest sleep, so it was. And like we were, by the time we came home, came back from Dara, we probably went back to the room at 11 o'clock that night and we were up at seven the next morning to be back down to sit with Dara for the whole day. Yeah, we were exhausted. We never, like I can safely say we never slept for a year. Yeah. A full year. At the start of this conversation, you had said when it came to autism, you never asked why. And you would think, whoever or what is up there, if they're dishing out their lot to someone, you would think when it comes to fairness, well, Dara, this family, the McNally family, they have their lot here. Yes. How do you process 
the the cancer how do you process all of that you're asking why yeah and that is a very good question because it is something that keeps me awake and keeps Paul awake at night had he not enough to contend with yeah, in life I agree you know was there not enough going on in that child's life to last him a lifetime you know and the big thing for us was always was who was going to look after Dara when Paul and I left I when Paul and I was gone never in a zillion years would we have thought that he would have went before us so yeah we have got angry and have said why give this child cancer why Dara you know he he really really was dealing with enough in this life you all were the whole family yeah it's not just a, a singular thing yeah because it affects you it affects the children it affects your family yeah, exactly. your friends because the people on that estate you know that you worship so much they're an extension of your family yeah it has a knock-on effect to everyone i know i know and like when you think too of like um my dad and taking Dara swimming every single week and all like Dara was very much part everything that all our families did was revolved around Dara like no matter family events anything it was always with Dara in mind and everybody did so much for him everybody tried so hard for him and uh, he adored we adored the two families yeah it, it was just when he got cancer, it was not even when he got cancer, when he passed away, it was like, why? But part of me says this all the time, and I don't know whether I fully believe it, but it keeps cropping up in my head as to would he have been able to cope with the vigorous treatment? He was asleep when he was getting all his treatment in ICU. Would Dara and his autism and his ways been able to cope with this vigorous, vigorous treatment that he had to get. Would Dara have been able to cope waking up with no hair? Would Dara have been able to cope? Dara had a thing called Prez, which was like an inflammation to the brain, which gave him very low muscle tone in his legs. Dara probably would have been in a wheelchair after he woke up from ICU. You had all of this and then bang, COVID hitting a couple of months later. In my head, I think it would have been all too much for Dara. I don't know if he would have been able to cope with all of that. I mean, I think as the person, people, by the way, Paul's here beside you, your security guard. <laughs> I think you know the answer to that. Mm. I think I think you pose it as a question, yeah. but you knew him yeah. more than anyone. And I think as much as it's a, it's a recurring question for you, <clears throat> I think you know the answer. I do. And... I think it would have been all too much for him. I do. As brilliant as he was at overcoming obstacles in his life, there's only so much a body can take. You were even talking there about when we all have, you know, children, Arthur and I aren't blessed yet, you know. Not yet, Brian, not not yet. yet. Not yet. (laughs) When you do have a child or children and someone that is as special as Dara with his diagnosis, even from an early age, what you said there, it, it's triggered me to go, 
you are planning years, 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 decades ahead when you're not around and you and Paul are still young. Who will look after Dara? It's so complex and complicated. Yes. I don't think people get the severity. No. Of your situation. And only as you're talking, I'm finding myself being educated more about it. You don't stop. You never stop being a parent. You would never have stopped being a parent. No. And like I would have always said, Dara was our Peter Pan. He was always our, like, we... We used to be, we loved going on our holidays and we're blessed that with Dara's autism that he got on a plane fine and he had no, like there's a lot of children on the spectrum that would be very overwhelming for him. So we were blessed that noise and and stuff like that didn't bother him as much that we could inhabit, like we have so many good memories of going on holidays with Dara. But I remember saying to Paul, can you picture us, you know, in 15 years down the line, I said, we're going to be coming along the beach with this big man in between us, I says, telling him, telling us we're, you know, daddy's best friend and mommy's best boy ever and holding his hand. And and I remember Paul saying, and sure, what about it? Bring it on. And, you know, this is what we were, we, we, we always knew Dara was going to be with us. And there was never a question of Dara, like, going into any type of care. Paul always said, if he ever had to give up work, he was going to give up work. We built onto the house to suit Dara's needs. We built him a room for himself that the other kids could use the other two sitting rooms, you know, when their friends came over. And like we were always planning for Dara for when he got older. That was it was always about that, you know, and the, it's it's not that we don't think of the other three kids. It's just that. You know, you can see like Layla's five now and she's so independent. So she is and she can do so much for herself. Dara always needed our help with everything he did, with everything, you know. So um, and I remember like I, I, I was saying at the beginning of, of our conversation, feeling so complete when Dara was born. My God, you know, when Nisha was born, I remember saying, this is amazing because he has a sibling either side of him and, you know, to, look after him. to go and look after him. And I've said this before, Layla was our big, big surprise. And I remember like saying, how on earth am I going to have another child and deal with Dara? And we were after getting this service dog and I had this little girl, Nisha and Nathan. And I was like, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to cope with all of this. And I remember when Layla was born and uh, I said to Paul, he has these two little girls that are going to, you know, bring him on so much. And they did. And, you know, he absolutely. But Nisha has, Nisha, we, we took them to see the Toy Story before he passed away. And he turned around to Nisha in the cinema and he says, you're my best friend. And Nisha yeah. can remember this, you know. Yeah. And when I look at Layla and I say, tell you, she is, you know, like Nisha and Nathan are, and I'm not just saying this, they're very good kids. You know, they don't give us one bit of bother. And then you have the rocket that is Layla. And she is so full of energy. She's so, um, you know, she's so headstrong. And she is Dara without autism. And we see so much of Dara in her, so much. And she 
she amazes us day in and day out on what she remembers about him. And she was only very young, you know. Like, Is it a fear for you that she may not remember him or they may forget? No. Okay. And I mean that. <clears throat> and you see, I'm one of these people and I know I drive others mad that take so many photographs. The ticks. You're so one of many. those moms. I'm one of those ones, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, and I've actually encouraged all of my family and friends to start taking more photographs because by God, have I captured every memory that you could possibly capture. From that time frame of five and a half weeks to Dara turning a corner, you know, and breathing by himself and all of that. Yeah. When were you told you have hours left with him? On Friday, so Dara passed away on Sunday morning, on Friday, am I right in saying this? Yes, on Friday, we were taken into a room and we were told Dara was as close to the edge as he could be. And on the Saturday, we were told to get all the family and friends up to say goodbye. And I remember putting it in a text in, in the group and I remember again writing this text message and you could say I had no emotion or you could say, you know, it was like I was writing it for somebody else. It was like I'm writing it, but I don't believe it. And at this stage of the game, Dara was on. So you have life support. You have the, the, the run of the mill life support machine, but there is like a grandfather life support machine. And it's so noisy. It is like, you know, when a, you know, when a washing machine has nearly seen its day. Yeah. And the banging of a washing machine. It was this banging sound. And all I remember was. That day, that Saturday, he was on this life support machine from the day before. And I, all, I remember just going the noise, the noise that's in this room. And I remember going into the room. When. Um, our parents and our family and our close friends were saying their goodbyes. And I remember saying, I can't hear that anymore. And everybody was commenting on the noise of this machine and I couldn't hear it. And I was like, yeah, it's loud, it's loud. So that night, everybody said their goodbyes and they all went home, except for mum and dad. So there's a little room in Crumbling called the Butterfly Room that are given to parents whose children are um, not going to last. So mum and dad were down in that room and Paul and I were sitting um, with Dara and I could hear the noise again. Started hearing the noise, the noise of the machine. And at this stage, Dara didn't look like Dara. Okay. Dara did not look anything like himself. So... I think the life support machine was supposed to be switched off the next day. And who makes that decision? Um, uh, the the ICU doctors. Um, we were told that nothing was nothing was going to help Dara okay. at this stage, but they don't give up. They don't give up, and we're sitting there at whatever time in the morning, half four or five. And this lovely little nurse, and God bless them, and I have to say it about them, I don't know how they do their job. And they were amazing, all the nurses up there in Crumlin, so they were. They used to say to us, 
we'd be sitting at the desk in the morning and they'd be all saying, I went into Dara's room. And I used to say, the crack is all happening here in Dara's room. So it is. They were just lovely. Yeah. And they, we were we had great chats and we met really good friends. But this poor nurse, and she walked past with a bag of whatever concoction was in it to rig Dara back up to it. And at that stage, I just said, stop. Okay. No more. No more. So the consultant that was on that day, because it was Sunday, there was restricted staff at the weekend. But the little doctor that was on that day, that morning, she came in to me and she says, would you like me to ring Cormac was his name, the consultant Cormac? And I says, please, yes. So Cormac got up out of his bed from his own family and came in. And I remember saying to him, forget about being a doctor. Forget about all your qualifications. I said, from a parent to a parent, if this was your child. And he said, I want to turn the machine off yesterday. So at that point, I said, no more, no more. And mum and dad will never know what made them get up and come down at that point. But mum and dad walked in the room too. So Cormac said, um, this is the right decision. So they took Dara off the life support. The noise stopped. And I said, how long have we got with him? And he says, probably just a couple of minutes, a minute or two. So they took all the machines away from Dara. And myself and Paul and mum and dad sat with Dara. And typical Dara slipped away and the machine went blank. And then it started beeping again. And about 20 minutes after they took him off life support, Dara went with, with the angels up to heaven. And that was it. When that <clears throat> insistent noise of the machine stopped. Did you find any peace? Yes, to a certain extent, yes. And I remember very vividly sitting there holding Dara's hand and thinking no more, no more pain, no more autism. No more suffering, no more treatment, no more low blood cells and high blood cells and all the terminology that became our norm. Yeah. Neutropenic, like all these all these words that never heard of them. They, um, yeah, I do remember saying no more. And I remember again for the very first time thinking, three kids at home that need their mommy and daddy too we've been up here for five weeks yeah. and five days you know did you as a parent did you say what you wanted to say to him were you able to yes I sang I, I sang away in a manger into his ear just before he passed away Dara knew out of every child of all our kids 
we're very we're a very verbal family like there's no such thing as not telling each other we love each other we're nearly over the top you know when I used to say it to Dara give mammy lovies huggies kisses and squeezies and you know we were just we are and I'm blessed that we are the family that we are and, you know that Paul and I have the relationship that we have and the kids have the relationship that they have with each other like he definitely knew a hundred percent and we've no regrets with that and I, I, I can safely say that we did everything we possibly could when it came to planning Dara's funeral what was that like for you Dara's funeral it's probably a sentence or a question <laughs> you never thought you'd no. hear and it's only when you say it and then I go shit yeah it's yeah it's still it's probably still quite a surreal thing to be asked Dara's funeral was huge <clears throat> it was massive in Dundalk I think Dara's death because it was quite public as well um, Dara was mentioned in national newspapers and different things a lot coming up to it actually that's a, so, a point about dealing with grief when it's in the public domain yeah how does that how did you feel with that with this being such a public story um, well I suppose because we were enclosed indoors um, in ICU it didn't really affect us that much but it was only and I probably when I look when I when I think of Dara's funeral um, it was only months later that I started thinking back of God this happened and that happened so for me I, I have a very good friend Michael who is a fantastic singer I rang Michael from England to see could he come home yes he could um, Niall Kyo our, uh, he's a friend of ours but he's also um, he owns the funeral the, the funeral parlour he took over everything Um. Brian, I just got stuck in. Right. I just knew this was Dara's final send off and I wanted to just celebrate the little boy's life that he that who he was. So we had balloons, blue balloons, blue for autism and wearing blue today for Dara, blue for Dara, balloons all up the church. We had Peppa Pig. Um teddies we look, look at it was the music was amazing even the the registration on the car was peppa pig okay you know um everybody did nobody was allowed nobody wore black everybody wore blue um everybody the town of dundalk came to a standstill as i explained to you the four kids were in four different schools so you had niches school doing Guard of Honour, us leaving the estate as you drove down the town, ran by Dara's school. His whole school released hundreds and hundreds of balloons, passing the school. Then you had Nathan's school, you had to drive past that to get to the church. They all did Guard of Honour. Um, look at Brian, it was just, it give, looking back, it gives us so much comfort that so many people came out that so many people cared. Again, during the wake, we only opened our house for a certain amount of time. I can't tell you the volume of people that came in, but I know there was a lot. Um, Dara's, Dara and Dara's ways struck a chord with so many people. 
and I've had so many messages, so many people stopping me and saying thank you, you know, that they look at life differently now because of different things that I would say about Dara. Are you religious, Colleen? Are you a religious family? I believe in, I do believe there's something more out there. I believe in the good of people more so than religion. I believe good um, and and living in a good and as good a life as you can and seeing the good in people more so than believing in sitting down and saying a prayer. But do I believe there's more to this life? Do I believe there's a heaven? A hundred percent. Because the signs that we've got from Dara since then and the fact that I can, that Paul and I are continuing on with life and that we're doing what we're doing. There's somebody somewhere giving us the strength to do that. And that's Dara. You mentioned the word signs there. When I contacted you a few weeks ago about being part of season four, and I talked about when the podcast would go out, I said it'd be around October, November, November. time. And that comes up to Dara's anniversary. Two years, yeah. And I do think that that is so do a I. sign considering this season four shouldn't have been happening till next year. I know. We were debating a tour. Yeah. And because of COVID, COVID's been so great, hasn't oh, it? Oh, it's brilliant. <laughs> that we've had to pause, pause, pause yeah. and implement planning season four. And I do believe when I sit down with people, there's always a coincidence, a date, yeah. a time or when I'd reach out that I do believe that was the greatest sign. And I said that to mum the other day, I said, when you when you messaged, I said, can you believe, I said, that this is not going to be aired until October, November. And this is the time when it all started with Dara from begin from the first we were in Spain on the 1st of October till the 24th of November. That's when Dara passed away. The, look, it, I go, I was saying this to Paul the other day, yeah, quite the back to the line and I know everybody says a robin comes to their garden we do from Am, yeah but this robin like it literally gets your attention until you look at persistent it persistent like, things yes. aren't they robins <laughs> you know and like he, he's literally like you wouldn't even see him and he's chirping away at you until you turn around and say right I see you now what do you want you know? and I don't believe that it's Dara but I believe it's a sign. I believe it's a sign. Oh, Paul has just passed me a picture of Nisha, Nathan and Layla with this robin. With this robin, yes. They're looking so gazingly going, <laughs> what's this robin going to do, Dad? <laughs> and how funny you referred to the robin as a he. I yeah. refer to the robin that visits us. Yes. As, as a, a she, she. Yeah. Because of your mom. mom. Yeah, exactly. You were saying there about heaven. Yes. Dara's in heaven. What's he doing? Well, I dream a lot about Dara. Do you? I do. Okay. And there are dreams that I wake up and I want to go back to sleep. And in every one of my dreams, Dara still has autism. But nothing bothers him. And he's still the little free boy running around, jumping up and down. How would you want Dara to be remembered? I want Dara to be remembered for the wonderful, happy, smiley little boy that he was. 
I want Dara to be remembered for making a difference. We like again, I said this before, you know, Dara was different and that's okay to be different. And, you know, it does pain me sometimes to see the younger generation coming up nowadays. And I know, you know, they're all wanting to look a certain way and to be a certain way. But, you know, I know we all want to look our best and to be our best and to do our best. Sometimes it's okay not to do that. And sometimes it's okay to not follow a crowd. And sometimes it's okay to be just who you are. And that's the way he was. He was him. And it wasn't, you know, your typical child doing the typical things. It was just, you know, him coming in in the morning and jumping on the bed in between you and telling you to get up at six o'clock in the morning that he wanted, you know, he, he just, just to be remembered for being the best he could have an autism. What do you miss the most about Dara? I just miss Dara. I just miss him. Yeah. Everything. You know, our family life has changed so dramatically because he's not here anymore. You know, like when I think back at Christmases, he adored Christmas and I don't even know how he got through Christmas that year. Like his month's mine was on Christmas Eve and Dara would have been the one that, you know, with his autism, Halloween was over and the Christmas ads would come on and he'd be like, "Mom, you get the Christmas tree, you want the Christmas decorations. And I remember one year we put the tree up very early, the middle of November. And I was saying to Paul, keep I thought you were going to say September there. No. November is completely no. acceptable. I was like, keep the blinds down. <laughs> so I said, people don't think People don't think, you know, we have the tree up. Yes. So Dara has passed away. And um, yeah, we put the Christmas tree up very early now. So we do. And because um, it's okay to be you know, to, to do things your own way. But also just, it's about cherishing moments mm, and memories and that Christmas tree yeah, is for Dara. I know. Why do you think people are uncomfortable talking about grief, death, loss? I don't think it, when, when people, I like, people come up to us and say, look, I don't know what to say to you. And I don't think it's because they don't want to talk to you. And I don't think it's because, you know, um, I think some people find it easier to talk than others. And for me, what I'm doing and the way I speak about grief, it's to help these people to talk to us and to not be afraid. And like I'd be saying to the kids as well, when I'd be talking about grief, like, you see, if you're in school, and a pang comes over you or you feel sad about Dara, don't be afraid to go up to your teacher and say, you know, I need to get out for a little walk or I need to do this. When a pang of grief comes over you, you should be able to acknowledge it. My final question to you is, has this changed you? Everything your whole family has been through. You've been tested yeah. more than others above and beyond. Yeah. Has it changed you positively or negatively? When I mean positively, for me, I am now more decisive with decisions. Yes. I now know who I want to spend time with. Oh, yes. And not those. Yes. So to me, that's a positive. Right, okay. The yes. negative is, set me a bit off the rails and a bit do lally and I can yes. be a bit impatient. Yes. 
because I'm still grieving. Yes, definitely. Because now we only surround ourselves with our family and our friends who totally get where we're at and um, that make us feel better about ourselves, you know. So, yeah, Dara, Dara's life, Dara's passing has left a huge, huge impact on my life and Paul's. And um, we will always continue to keep his memory alive. And we're so, so thankful, Brian. And we do it all again that we have him. Of course. Thank you so much for agreeing to be part of season four. I think people's understanding of autism, I hope this conversation helps. I hope you've enjoyed the experience. I have, Brian. And thank you so much for having me. No, thank you. You're as good. Thank you, Colleen. Thank you, Brian. One thing that has become incredibly evident from this podcast and Colleen's story, it's that community, connection and togetherness will be the thing that helps us through. I hope Colleen's story has resonated with you and that you have found support in her words and will continue to support her on Instagram at Dara's underscore balloon underscore ride. Next week on Death Becomes Him, Lisa Cannon joins me to open up about grieving during lockdown and how losing the dog that helped her cope during her mother's passing opened up old wounds. Your whole heart's wrapped around that person. And I know by looking at you, your heart was your mother's heart. Totally. And same with me. Yeah. And you're almost like kindred spirits. That the emptiness, that loss of not you know, and all the memory. I think that's also hard as well. All those brilliant memories. You know that you could create all those brilliant memories and more over the rest of your life, but you can't. It's mm. cut short. They're gone. Yeah. And it's how you deal with that and how you you decipher, you know, your life. I mean, I found it quite difficult um, figuring out my life without my mum in it. 